stay hungry, stay foolish. The future will get even more perplexing over the next decade, and we're not ready. The dilemma is that we're restricted by rigid categorical thinking that freezes people and organizations in neatly defined boxes that are often inaccurate or obsolete. Categories lead us towards certainty but away from clarity, and categorical thinking moves us from understanding the bigger picture. Sticking with this old way of thinking and seeing isn't just foolish, it's dangerous. Our guest is a leading futurist and shows us how a new way of thinking enhanced by new technologies will help leaders break free of limiting labels and see new gradients of possibility in a chaotic world. We welcome the author of Full Spectrum Thinking, How to Escape Boxes in a Post-Categorical Future, Bob Johansson. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be with you, Aidan. It's fantastic to have you on the show, Bob. I'm absolutely fascinated by your work and the back catalogue. We'll get through all that in time. But I thought we'd start in a different way than I usually start, Bob. And I'd start by talking about the about me part of a book where the author writes about themselves because yours is quite unusual. And you talk about some key decisions and key moments in your life. Uh, that disrupted your spectrum of thought. So let's share some of those as a way to introduce the book, Full Spectrum Thinking. Sure, I'm happy to do that. And it was an interesting decision because usually about the author is kind of a vague uh, bio of your academic background and all. And what I tried to do is to be personal and to think back after I wrote this book about full spectrum thinking, kind of getting beyond the categories and beyond the labels and the boxes that we we all have in life. And um, there were definitely stages in my life where I went about as far as I could. And I, I talk in the book, I played high school basketball in Illinois, which is a hotbed of basketball. And I was in a very small town, but I was a good player and our team did very well. And um, so my early identity was as a basketball player um, and it paid my way through college and I got through college, but I was not good enough to be a pro. <laughs> uh, and I then gradually realized that um, there's a whole full spectrum of possibilities out there. And I'd kind of locked myself into this identity as an athlete. Um, but I, I went as far as I could. Uh, so I had to find a new identity and a new way of thinking about myself. And that's as I started to imagine myself as a student and even a scholar. Um, that was kind of the next step in the journey for me. One of the pre people you mentioned that was a key player in your career and your life really was a guy called Jacques Vallée, the French computer scientist and astronomer, who was the role model for the scientist in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So that was a bit further down the line after I'd started to imagine myself as a futurist and um, 
I got to go to Institute for the Future in the early days of Silicon Valley before it was actually called that. And, and I worked on a team that Jacques led that was bringing together all the resources on the precursor to the internet. It was called the ARPANET. And we developed what today you'd call a social medium. You know, it was kind of like Facebook, a little bit like Slack, um, you know, it had elements of group collaboration. Um, and I worked with Jacques and, you know, Jacques was such, is such an unusual guy because he's a computer scientist, but he was trained as an astronomer. Um, and, you know, in, in his early life, he was an astronomer at a French observatory and there was data that showed up one night that they couldn't make sense of. And he brought it to the director and the director said, well, get rid of the data. And he said, wait a minute, this isn't the way science is supposed to work. <laughs> and he uh, got excited about the idea of trying to figure out how to categorize and make sense out of things that didn't fit. And he became one of the voices of, of science in this kind of crazy space of UFOs, which is, you know, part astronomy, part psychology and and a lot of weirdness folded in, but he's one of the few people that's trying to make sense out of it um, from a more ra rational, but not judgmental way. And, and it was life-changing for me to be around somebody like him because he was constantly questioning and he still is. Uh, he's now a venture capitalist kind of thinking on the future, but he continues to be interested in unidentified phenomenon of different, different kinds. Yeah, and we're, we're going to see more and more of that in life, which is part of your mission is to educate people. I, you know, I find when I read the book, I felt so aligned with the mission of you and the Institute for the Future, because this whole idea of giving people new information to make new decisions to change mindsets to change frames and lenses through which they see the world is absolutely core. But you, you mentioned a few things there, one will share what the Institute of the Future is, but let's start with what categorical thinking is. And I pulled a quote that I absolutely love. You may have seen I shared it on Twitter as well. It goes as follows. Categories coerce. Categories are thrown at people like capture nets over wild animals. Categories keep us in cages. Categories can kill. Full spectrum thinking is the ability to seek pattern patterns and clarity across gradients of possibility outside across beyond, or maybe even without any boxes or categories, while resisting false certainty. I absolutely love that. And I thought that'd be a nice way to tee up the idea of categories. And it's something you talk about a lot. One of the first questions you ask in your workshops is, what categories do you use to describe yourself? So right now we're in this crisis period and it isn't just one crisis, it's compounded crises. So we have the COVID crisis, the novel coronavirus crisis. We have the racial justice crisis. We have economic crises that are hitting us. So it's compounded crises and the present, the present's so noisy. It's just so noisy. It's hard to make sense out of what's going on. But if you're able to think future back, in more of a full spectrum way, you're able to get oriented to make sense of things to the extent that sense can be made, but at least to try to be more future ready instead of less. Uh, and while we can't future proof ourselves, we can be more future ready. And full spectrum thinking helps us do that. And 
future back thinking helps us helps us do that. You mentioned there about the the brain being a prediction machine and using the past to predict the future. And you mentioned in the book, the neuroscientist Kevin Oshner, a Columbia professor who was a respondent to your 2018 keynote at the Neuro Leadership Summit, where you talked about the value of strategic foresight and futures thinking. Oshner's response was that foresight can lift us up from the eternal present, where our brains function by default. I thought that was really nicely put and might tee you up for why we're stuck in the past, really, and stuck in default mode. It was so interesting. Uh, you know, the Neuroleadership Institute in New York is just an amazing place that's trying to make neuroscience practical. And, you know, I did the opening keynote and they had a neuroscientist assigned to me and they followed me throughout the whole session. I, I did the opening keynote and then I brought in the commandant from the Army War College and we had a whole series of things during the few days. But each stage, there was a neuroscientist following me to put what I was saying in a neuroscience context. And this is so important because our brains are constantly processing the present in in very grounded, very specific ways. So they're basically trying to predict what's going to happen next to keep us safe. So even though I say you can't predict the future, and that's true, our brains try to do it anyway, all the time. And what we need to do is to teach our brains new tricks, uh, teach our brains to think future back. And all of us have what the neuroscientists call this neural story net that's playing in our brains. Um, and it's our history, our view of the future, our, the way we process things. And what we have to do is to reimagine, create new neural story nets, which are you know, basically stories uh, that, that capture, because our brains are wired for stories. And if they don't hear stories, they make them up. So what I do as a futurist is I try to create new stories in your brain uh, to provoke your insight. So I'm not predicting the future. I'm provoking your insight. And I'm basically a storyteller. I'm telling you stories from the future to provoke your insight. And it doesn't matter if you agree with my stories or not. It only matters if you're provoked by them. It's so important. And I think that's such a, a valuable element of the Institute as well. But I often think about that, Bob, with sci-fi movies, because in a way, it's paving the future for us, but it doesn't have to be that future. You can actually give new, inf yeah, you can give new information like you do to create new futures. Yeah, so the Institute of the Future is the longest running futures think tank in the world now. And we started in 1968, and I joined in the 1970s. So we've been doing this a very long time. So the first question you should always ask a futurist is, have you outlived your forecasts? <laughs> and we have five times over, and we have to keep track. So we're usually right. You know, we keep track every decade we look back, 60 to 80% of our forecasted future over the last 50 plus years have actually happened, uh, depending on your definition of happened. But it turns out that's not the way you evaluate a futurist. That's the way you evaluate a fortune teller. <laughs> you know, did the forecasted future happen? What's really important is not that. What's important is, does the forecasted future provoke an insight 
that leads to a better decision in the present. So some of our forecasts now about global climate disruption, I hope they don't happen. I hope we're smart enough to avoid them. So the real criteria for success there is not does the forecasted future happen, it's does the forecasted future provoke an insight that leads to a better decision so we can avoid that future from happening. So, so often, Aiden, the most useful forecasts are those you don't like, you know, the, the forecasts that make you really uncomfortable. I thought, Bob, we'd share also VUCA because VUCA is something we talk about a lot on the show, but it was very, you were very close to the source of that, which was the American War College. I know I, I, I still am. I teach at the Army War College, which is based in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. I'm not a military guy by background, but I just happened to be there the week before 9-11 with a group of CEOs and senior Deloitte partners. And I learned a lot about their concept of what they call the VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And they coined the term. Um, I got involved with them and I started bringing business executives there and nonprofit executives there because unfortunately, um, the military, and it's not just the army in the US, it's military groups around the world, they're actually at the edge of understanding this extremely uncertain future. Um, and they're much better at it than we are in business or we are in nonprofits. Um, so I figured I have to learn from them. And what I've done over the years now, I've been working with them since 9-11, and now I've been promoted. <laughs> so I work with the new three-star generals on their first week in Washington, and they read my books, and I'll do another session in February. And it's a challenge for them to try to bring clarity to this VUCA world uh, without certainty, because they know the dangers of certainty. You can't predict in this world. You can't be rigid. You've got to be flexible. And they've got this whole wonderful language around it. They call it commander's intent or mission command or flexive command. And, you know, the big deal is you want to be very clear where you're going but very flexible how you get there. And command and control doesn't work. It's just too dangerous to have command and control. You know, certainty, certainty gets us in a lot of trouble. We need clarity, but certainty is dangerous. And our, our brains want certainty, but we can't have it. We can't have certainty, but we can. We can have certain, we can have clarity. So I've kind of flipped the VUCA world negative. And what I've said is that, volatility yields to vision and vision will get rewarded disproportionately in this future. Uncertainty yields to understanding. We have to be listening to each other, not shouting at each other. Complexity yields to clarity. And we have to be very clear where we're going, very flexible about how we get there. And finally, ambiguity yields to agility. We all have to be corporate athletes. And you know, you, Aiden, you were a rugby player. I was a basketball player. We all have to be athletes in the business world or the nonprofit that we work in. We all have to be very agile and we all have to be very much able to respond. And we all have to be physically, mentally, and even spiritually healthy and agile, uh, not necessarily religiously, but we have to have a sense of meaning and a sense of purpose in the face of this really frightening VUCA world that we're going to experience whether we like it or not. 
You, you've dropped in so many nuggets there where you're, I'm going, will I go there? Will I go there? I'm going to jump to the, the mentions because you, you use the war college and you use the army college as a great exemplar of somebody who who is an edge behavior, who's living on those edges and understanding where organizations are going next. And and when you think about that, it makes sense because this, the organizational structure, the hierarchical structure came from both religion and military in the first place. But I was thinking about this, that you mentioned their commander's intent, but also there was a really interesting thing that's useful for business leaders. We have many CEOs and business leaders who listen to this show is AARs, the after action reviews. I thought this was really useful, particularly how it's done. So these are called after action reviews or AARs. And there's, again, a whole literature around that. And what they've documented now is that in this VUCA world, this highly uncertain world, you need to continuously learn from your experience. So you need what they call situation awareness of what's going on around you. And the way you get that is by continuously evaluating experiences that happen. And it's a very simple concept, but very profound. And basically it just says, okay, what happened? What was the original intent? And what worked and what didn't work? You know, what could be learned around that? And they've created all these big databases out of it, but it turns out the databases aren't that useful, but the discipline the discipline of after action reviews is very useful. It's the discipline of learning as you go. And it's, you know, in Silicon Valley, we've got this phrase, fail early, fail often, fail cheaply. (laughs) You know, that's a kind of rapid prototyping, immersive learning strategy that we need in the VUCA world. And having after action reviews is just a very important part of that discipline of learning as you go. Um, And then, periodically reassessing your clarity because what you want is to be very clear where you're going, very flexible how you get there, and you want to develop your clarity but moderate your certainty because you can't be certain about very much. I mean, there's a few things, but you can't be certain about very much in the VUCA world, but you have to be clear. And and in our daily lives, we need to seek out those voices of clarity and avoid the people with certainty. And and unfortunately, especially in today's polarized political world, there's lots of people who are certain, but very few people who are clear. Now, I was thinking about what you said about the basketball and the athletics and rugby for me, that one of the biggest lessons I got from that is the ability to take feedback and to critically assess what you just did, because you have to do that on a regular basis. And that is such a valuable thing, because you look upon any experience and you go, what could I have done better? How did I contribute towards the the perceived failure of that? So it, nothing really is a failure because you're looking at it all and going, what can I take from the ashes of that burnt out experience and make something anew like a phoenix coming from the ashes? You know, that's, that's a, a mental model I think you get from sport and from criticizing yourself on a regular basis. W- one of the things you said on AARs I thought was really interesting the biggest difficulty both in the in the military but also in organizations is separating the organizational field experience from the individual performance because we always tend to go to the individual and it feels like a blame issue then here's the big challenge in business um I- 
I don't know a single company, and I work with some of the best companies in the world. I don't know a single company that successfully uses after action reviews across the whole company. I know many companies have successful pockets, but what you have to do, and here's the big block for businesses, is you have to separate the after action review from the performance review. And that's very hard to do. So in the military, they do that successfully. But the people who conduct AARs, it's not your boss who does it. It's an independent facilitator who does the AAR. And you focus on learning and you separate that performance review. And it's that's very hard, very hard to do. Bob, I wanted to share as well. You can see the graphic yeah. I have on the screen here. So I, we, we'll yeah. be empathetic because most of our most of our audience are actually listeners, so they'd be listening on various uh, outlets, Spotify, iTunes, etc. But I wanted to yeah, share yeah. This graphic for those who are watching us on YouTube, because this is a shape-shifting organization. But the reason I wanted to show this was actually this is what the military look at as an organization, but they also look at the threats out there. So terrorism, etc. This is the shape. It has no structure. It's no hierarchical structure. There's no top of the pyramid. It's constantly moving. I'd love if you'd share a little bit about this again, with the empathy that some people can't see the graphic. Sure. So um, the image to think of if you're listening is a fishnet lying on a dock and you pick up a node on the fishnet and a temporary hierarchy forms. You put that down, you pick up another node, another temporary hierarchy forms. So hierarchies don't go away. They're just very much more fluid and they come and go depending on the need. There's no center. They grow these networks, these shape-shifting organizations, they grow from the edges they can't be controlled, but they can be guided. And the good news is they're very flexible um, and can respond to the situations much better. The bad news is the criminals are better at this than we are. <laughs> and they don't have the constraints, you know, they like laws. <laughs> so, so the criminals are better than we are. Uh, but this is the organization of the future. So this kind of undulating fishnet with hierarchies that come and go, that's the org chart of the future. That's the organization chart of the future. And we have to reimagine hierarchy in the context of this shape-shifting, ever-changing world in order to be able to be future ready. And then the worker. So you, you, you give a lot of time to the worker of the future, a kind of a gig economy person bringing back to coming back to what you said earlier on about the agility and flexibility of thinking of the person right. and being able to let go of the person you used to be you mentioned the basketball identity you change that you become something else so we too have to be shapeshifters to work in the new business landscape of the future we do now there will still be people with traditional jobs and traditional careers but they're just won't be as many of those. And I tell the story in the beginning of the book about the meeting I had with Peter Drucker, the famous management guru. And I met him with the CEO of Procter & Gamble, A.G. Laffley at the time. And I met Peter Drucker in the last year of his life. He was 94. Uh, and the message he told us was, the first half of your life, you should do many different things and work with many different kinds of people because you don't know who you are. Um, and he had six different careers before he was 60. Uh, and then he said, for the second half of your life, you should only work on things you're passionate about and only work with people you love to work with. 
And this was a very optimistic message because the guy was almost 100 and he was still going strong. So the halfway point in your life is roughly 50. So do many things early. And if you're lucky, you'll find your own clarity, your own vision of what you want to be. Uh, but for most of us, it doesn't happen till later. Uh, and that's okay. Uh, but look for that clarity, but be very flexible about how you get there. And what that means in today's world is you've got to be more fluid in how you think about work. And a traditional job may not be right for you. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, what we're calling right now gig work, uh, but gig work can still have clarity. Uh, I'm really interested in the more innovative platforms for gig work, like the, the platform called Upwork, for example, has the ability to be very flexible about how you work, but it also has healthcare insurance and retirement planning and various kinds of things that are the good side of jobs. Um, and it builds that in. And there's a big debate in California right now about gig work and full-time employment and what's a job, what's an employee. Um, and you know, the legislature in California is trying to regulate that. There's a pushback and an initi initiative on just the last ballot that was funded by Uber and the gig work companies. Uh, this is gonna be a very important space over the next decade. How do you sort out the future of work in a world where inevitably there will be fewer traditional jobs um, that's the bad news. The good news is there'll be many more ways to make a living. And we got to figure out how to do this in a humane way, how to do this in a way that helps people become more what they want to be, and also um, keeps companies from taking advantage of people. Uh, but it, it's a very difficult challenge. Uh, you know, the notion of the job is going to be reimagined over the next decade. And that's our challenge. How do we create that from a policy point of view? How do we create that from an organizational point of view? How do we create that from a personal point of view? One of the most valuable lessons I had in life so far was having to retire early from sport because you have to. And one of the studies I quote in the book is that about 80% of NFL players, when they retire on an average salary of two to $3 million are broke within a couple of years, because they can't let go of the person they used to be. And that is one of the yeah. biggest gifts that retiring from sports because you're only in your 30s, gives you it goes because you have to let go of that person. Very few, there's very few Shaquille O'Neal's or in your sport, or the top players in every realm that go on to be a TV personality, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So the for all the rest, you have to actually use what's useful from that former self and build another one. And you mentioned there, Peter Drucker, one of my my version of Peter Drucker, as we spoke about, and you've met and been to his to his ranch was D Hawk. He's 93. He's still going strong. He is a proponent of this consistently learning, learning wide on a wide spectrum of thinking and diverse, uh, um, eclectic reading, because then your spectrum gets wider and wider. And this is such an essential part of the full spectrum thinking mindset. All of us encounter this one way or another. And I think if you if you view the world as a spectrum of possibilities and your job is to find your path, find your way through that. 
And you assume that that's going to take lots of experimentation and there's going to be lots of changes. I think that's the right mentality to have. And you expect that you can only go so far in one path um, and unless you're extremely lucky. So for most of us, there's an, there's an iteration and then there's a moment of truth and you realize, well, I can't go any further on that path. I got to try another path. And in, in my book, I talk about my moments of truth. And, and I, I tell one story about how I was playing for University of Illinois. I was playing UCLA, which was ranked number one at the time. Um, and I was playing against Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, and it was his uh, sophomore year, my senior year. Um, and I was standing next to him at the free throw line um, in, the, in the old Chicago stadium, you know, 20,000 people. Uh, and I'm looking up at him and I'm, I'm pretty happy about my game. I actually got 20 points in that game, but he got 45, <laughs> you know, 45. And I'm looking up at him and I'm saying, whoa, I need another career. You know, I, I can't do this anymore. I, I'm just not good enough. Um, and we all have those moments that we just can't go any further on this path. And I had no idea what's next. So I had to step back from my identity and then reimagine what might be next. And for me, it was reimagining myself as a graduate student and then eventually as a futurist. Uh, but it was a, a big, frightening life change at the time. And, and again, coming back to that, I, I love the, the term shape shifting, because it, it's it, I just think even as your brain and your mindset is constantly shifting to the shifting environment. But one of the things shifting is the workplace and the workplace of the of, of old for my my parents, my grandparents was a job for life. And you mentioned you worked a lot with P&G. It's one of your top clients. And you worked with A.G. Laffley. And he observed that P&G could no longer promise lifelong employment. But what they would promise was employability. And I thought this was an interesting concept for organizations out there. So P&G is one of the ultimate promote from within companies. And, and they still are to, to a real extent. But when AG came in as the CEO, um, he realized that they just couldn't go on with the traditional model of promote from within. Uh, but he did bring this very powerful notion is, you know, we can't promise lifelong employment, but we can promise lifelong employability. And, you know, when I started working with P&G, when you left the company, it was like you died. You know, you, you weren't supposed to talk about that person anymore. But now uh, when you leave the company, you become part of the family, you know, it, or you started when you started and you're part of the family forever. It's a, a diaspora now as much as it is a company. It's a values linked social network amplified by by new media. And you can see the best companies do this. McKinsey's always done it. P&G now does it. You can see some of the best universities, like there's, there's uh, Harvard people who keep their Harvard email address when they leave Harvard uh, and because they want to continue. I think MIT does that too. So there's efforts to keep the diaspora going, um, even if you leave the formal organization. And I think that's the way we all have to think about it. What is our community? What's our clarity? What are those continuing networks of people that you want to stay in touch with, even if you're no longer a full-time employee? And let's, let's talk a little bit about breaking beyond the categories now. 
we mentioned how categorical thinking keeps you in a box mentally as well and stops new information coming in. But you introduced a couple of exemplars of non-categorical thinking or breaking beyond the categories. One was the artist James Prozek, one you're a fan of, I, I hadn't heard of, and I'm, thank you for introducing me to him. His writing and painting is beyond categories. Let's share a little bit about that, and then we'll talk a little bit about autism and the break beyond the categorical thinking in neurodiverse people as well. Sure. So um, when you think about categorical thinking and you think about nature, um, there's been a continuing very long effort to use categories to, to describe nature. And it goes back to Linnaeus and uh, the kind of scientific method and uh, chemical mapping and, and, and all. And you know, categories aren't bad if they're accurate and if they're fair. Um, so what we need is not to get rid of categories completely. We just need to have the categories be more, more robust and more accurate. So James Prozek, a wonderful artist, he's Yale trained. Uh, but what he says is we're, we have to realize that nature is beyond categorization. There's, there's things about nature that are so complex and so wonderfully powerful and at times frighteningly powerful that we have to understand that we'll never fully categorize it. So we need, again, to pursue clarity, but avoid certainty. And he does this in his art. So he's got a whole series of uh, wonderful uh, characterizations of fish, for example, to show as a life form. And you can, you know, you can categorize a fish and call it a trout, but that doesn't freeze it. There's still some life that goes on beyond the categories. And uh, the thing I love about Prosek's art uh, is that he, he, explores the nature of understanding without falling into the trap of over-categorizing. And, and that's the challenge. It's kind of a dilemma of life. It's, it's never fully solved, but we want to categorize to the extent we can, but remain aware of that full spectrum. And the, the wonderful footnote about this that I talk a lot about in the new book is we've got these great new digital tools to do this. Like, big data analytics and visualization and machine learning and gainful engagement, tools that have been around a while, but they're now so practical that we can think in a full spectrum way beyond what we've been able to do in the past. You reminded me of a brilliant Einstein quote, everybody's a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing it is stupid. And I, I love that quote for breaking beyond the categories, and particularly with neurodiversity, because you take yeah. autism, for example, and you celebrate the fact that at least now, medical professionals are breaking beyond labeling somebody as being autistic or having autism to being on a spectrum, and full spectrum thinking really reflects what's really going on there. This surprised me, actually, because oftentimes the medical community is lagging in these areas, but and obviously they rely heavily on categorization. But the term that's being used now is autism spectrum disorders. And the shorthand is I'm on the spectrum. And the thing that surprised me over the last few years was, first of all, that the medical community is using that language, full spectrum language. But then at Institute for the Future in Silicon Valley, we now get 
applications to work with us where somebody says on a job application or in a resume, I'm on the spectrum. <laughs> really interesting where they That's used great. to hide that. Now they'd put it on and they say as a, a way of demonstrating, I can think differently. I'm not neuronormal. Uh, and that's why you should hire me. And it's interesting. There's programs I mentioned in the book at Stanford and other universities now, and, and some of the big tech companies to actually recruit people who are on the spectrum because of their ability to focus. And if you think we've got now some pretty famous examples like Greta Thunberg, the, the famous teenage climate activist, she's on the spectrum and she, she refers to that as her superpower, that she's able to concentrate beyond what other people can do. So to me, that's a really good example of how instead of labeling someone as autistic and, you know, being being labeled autistic often meant writing somebody off and saying, well, you can't do anything. You're you're autistic. But in fact, people who are on the spectrum have abilities as well as limitations. And I'm not trivializing the limitations. They're real. And depending on where you are in the spectrum, they can be very constraining. But on the other hand, there's power there and there's ability that's beyond neuronormal. And we have to figure out what that power is and help people develop that. And, and now I think we're able to, to think in those full spectrum ways instead of just labeling somebody and writing them off. All right. We had Leonard Mladenov on the show recently, and, and he yeah. co-authored with uh, Stephen Hawking, as you know, and he was saying that we talked about this and, and I thought it was really interesting that because Stephen was trapped in a way in his body, he had to find different ways of thinking and communicating, etc. But then I, I often think of neurodiversity like lenses or like if the brain is a lens through which you see the world, when the brain is different, you see the world differently. And that's the value. And this is what you talk about is the lenses we change with new information, the lenses change, we see the world differently, and then we get to different results. One of your first books, Bob, was uh, Get There Early, Sensing the Future to Compete in the Present. And you introduced there the foresight insight, insight action model. And you keep this up to date in Institute for the Future as well. Again, I'm going to share this because I thought this was so useful, a nice little model, very neat, wet, a lot of thought went into it, obviously, but a great way to understand the future. I'm going to share it here on our screen. And again, let's, uh, let's be empathetic towards the people who are listening here. <laughs> so here, just imagine a cycle, uh, a circle, um, and in the middle, full spectrum thinking, and the cycle kind of begins up at 12 o'clock to one o'clock with foresight, uh, and then down at five o'clock insight, and then over at nine o'clock action. So it's a cycle from foresight to insight to action. And this is the essence of what we do, um, is foresight, insight, action. This is how we work at Institute for the Future. And it always begins with hindsight. Um, and what we do, when we do 10-year forecasts, we always look at least 50 years back, because almost nothing happens that's truly new. Almost everything that happens was tried and failed years ago. So the question really isn't what's new because if it's truly new, it's almost certainly not gonna happen in the short run. But what you should be asking is what's ready to take off? You know, what's ready to take off? And having that historical view and, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does tend to echo. Uh, and we need to listen for those, those echoes. 
And then the foresight is a story from the future, thinking future back with signals to bring it to life, things that are already playing out. Because as William Gibson said, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. So, so part of what we do is map that unevenly distributed future. And then we tell those stories to provoke your insight. And an insight is an, an aha. An insight is much more than an idea. Uh, and it an insight creates a new story or a new pattern of connections in your brain. And once you've had an insight, you can't go back. <laughs> you can't go back. You can't unsee the insight. And the insight then feeds into action. Uh, that's where strategy lives, by the way, is between insight and action. Uh, that's also where faith lives. Uh, that's why it's called the leap of faith, between insight and action. So foresight, insight, action. And then the action feeds in to foresight again, because we learn from our actions. That's where after action reviews come in and we learn from our experience and then apply it going forward. Fantastic. And I pulled a quote in, in reference here in, in uh, relation to this, and I loved how you phrased this. You said, trends are patterns of change you can an anticipate with confidence, but disruptions are breaks in the patterns of change. Looking long can help you get a better view of where things are going. The notion here is that you you have to go far enough to get beyond people's normal planning horizon, but close enough in to have some practical benefit. Um, so I, ideally, uh, what we find with most companies is 10 years is about as far as we can go out. Uh, but there are examples, and I tell the story in the book about Dow Chemical looking 200 years out. Uh, and the reason they went 200 years out in their vision was to get beyond the lifespan of any current employee. <laughs> so it was really interesting uh, to get way out and then think future back. But you have to choose how far out in the future do you go. But the real art here is thinking future back and tying that back to foresight, insight, action. It's a continuing process. It's not a not a one-off. And I'm not saying you should do this all the time. I mean, you should focus on action, focus on the present, because that's where you get things done. But you continually need to cycle from foresight to insight to action. And one of the big questions is how far out do you go? And what makes sense in your particular world? You know, it made me think, I, I th thought about this and I looked back to your other book, which is fantastic. We, we have to cover in the future is leadership literacies. And yeah. I, I thought about because you talk about inequality, and we'll get to that in a few moments in in the world. So the rich poor gap, etc. But there's also in a, uh, an insight gap. So if you think about the world, and you think about leaders in the world, some have knowledge and some don't. And that in itself is an inequality, because the information with which you're making decisions is totally unequal across the world. And I thought about this being a, a huge advantage to those people, you know, Yuval Noah Harari talks about the gods and the useless, when we start adding AI and start augmenting our our intelligence. But already people are being augmented in their intelligence with information. And I thought that's a huge competitive advantage. Yeah, it definitely is. And there's more information than any of us can process. So we need to 
figure out how to make sense to the degree we can make sense, and then build in a foresight inside action process into our own ways of thinking, and then draw from external sources to give us that fresh view so we don't get locked in to our particular categories and our particular ways of thinking that are obviously going to constrain us. So it's, it's an art form to figure out how to do this. But I do find foresight inside action and full spectrum thinking, those are sort of basic mindsets. And it's, you know, I, full spectrum thinking is the third book in a trilogy. Um, I began with a focus on skills in a book called Leaders Make the Future. And then I realized I found the right 10 skills for leading in the future. Uh, those are correct, but skills aren't enough. And then I did five literacies that basically wrap the skills around literacies or practices or disciplines. And then I realized, but there's also a mindset. <laughs> and that's the third book in the trilogy on full spectrum thinking. The mindset that we need to thrive in the VUCA world in the next decade is this ability to think across gradients of possibility to pursue, to seek our clarity, but resist certainty, resist this temptation for simplistic labeling or simplistic categorization. I love the whole concept of mindset. I mean, mindset really drives me because you think back to again, sport or anything you, you achieve in life. Discipline is like mindset. Discipline can be pointed at anything and you go, okay, well, I'll use that skill of discipline. Mindset, I think is the same. It's like, I often think of if, if anybody out there has ever painted a rusty gate or a rusty door, you have to clean it down, sand it, prime it. And mindset's almost like a primer that makes the paint stick. And the paint is any dis, any liter literacy or any kind of uh, uh, new skills that you add, but mindset's the underlying element that it sticks to. And I thought that was a, a useful mental model for it. But I wanted to move into part two of the book. We're only in part two, by the way. Uh, and we even didn't, We I had to skip lots of stuff to get us through. But I, I wanted to introduce some of the tools, connectivity and people who will make full spectrum thinking possible in new ways in the future. And some of the terms you talk about, and I love these terms, one is clarity filters. And you talk about the whole idea of the scramble of the future. But one of the scrambles of the future will be with distrust. Here again, the neuroscience of trust and distrust is really interesting and revealing. And it turns out um, our brains process trust and distrust or mistrust in different parts of the brain. So trust is rational, it takes a long time to develop. Um, mistrust or distrust, either intentional or unintentional uh, trust is, is easy to develop and it's emotional. Um, so social media are really good for seeding distrust, not good at all for building trust. So in this climate, this very polarized political world, you can see people going for seeding mistrust, but it's very hard to develop trust. So that's one of the big dilemmas of our time is how can we develop trust and manage distrust or or mistrust, and it's a it's a it's a really big challenge for us as we as we face the next decade. And just another thing I mentioned there was the 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 concept of a clarity filter. I think this is really important. And for those people who are wondering, you know, what type of career I'll get into in the future, the whole idea of clarity filters is a very valuable field to get into. 
It's a big deal. And, you know, clarity filters are not new. We've always had people we trust, you know, the elders in some societies or the experts or the scientists. Uh, in these days, though, a lot of them are mistrusted or distrusted for various reasons, some of which are accurate, some of which are not. But this notion of the clarity filter, we're getting new ability to do that. And we already use filters with things like what networks we listen to, what filters. I mean, I mean, Aiden, you're a you're a filter. I mean, you're a clarity filter. If people listen to the innovation show, that you're serving as a clarity filter for them. Uh, so we have them already. And the tools of machine learning, the tools of matching, uh, they're getting a lot better. Visualization of data, they're getting a lot better. And I'm really optimistic over the next 10 years that we'll see these more flexible, full spectrum tools of clarity filtering as compared to these really rigid ones now where, you know, in the US, you might watch CNN or Fox, but very few people watch both. Uh, and those are kind of narrow-minded, simplistic categories. But what you want is filters that cover, uh, that cover a spectrum of possibilities. And, and you choose where you want to be on that spectrum. One of the terms I mentioned there, Bob, was the scramble. And I love this term you use for, for the future, entering the future. The scramble is another way of thinking about the VUCA world. And I use them in interchangeably. So volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. I wanted a word that everybody immediately understood that was not an acronym, <laughs> because I find acronyms annoying, uh, and a lot of people do. And VUCA is kind of a gross acronym in a way, uh, rough sounding. But scramble, if you just think of scramble as in the sense of a scrambled egg, <laughs> you know, that's the kind of world we're going to be in. It's going to be a scramble. Uh, again, the categories won't work in a rigid way. It's going to be messy. Uh, and once you scramble an egg, you can't unscramble it. So we can't unscramble the future, but we can make sense of it and we can adapt it and we can make interesting things out of it. You can turn the scrambled egg into an omelet. You can add things to it. You can add flavor. You can make it better, um, but you can't unscramble it. Brilliant. And one of the scrambles you talk about is a scramble for control. And here you talk about distributed authority networks, and how they're just beginning to play out now, but they got their start more than half a century ago. And you know, the internet is basically a distributed authority computer network. Uh, and it, if you go back to the original purpose, and I referenced this in, in the book, uh, 1964, the US military was immersed in the Cold War, and they wanted a network that would resist nuclear attack, because in those days, networks were centralized. So Paul Barron, one of our founders, uh, invented this concept when he was at RAND of packet switching. So you send a packet, the packet breaks down, it doesn't get reassembled until you get to the other end. So if you take out any portion of the network, the network continues to live. So that's the network that became the internet. And now we've got things like blockchain and other forms of what we're referring to as distributed computing, which are truly distributed, not just decentralized and definitely not centralized. So those kind of networks, again, have no center, grow from the edges, can't be controlled. And that's the world we're going for. And 
to me, that's really optimistic in the sense that anything that can be distributed will be distributed. Command and control just won't work in those worlds. It'll, it'll be attractive in the short run because people are so confused, but it won't scale. Um, the danger, and this is a real danger, is that it gets so distributed that you lose the ability to govern. You lose the ability. And that's what I'm so worried about with polarized politics is um, you'll see politicians who kind of tear down the institutions, but don't put anything back. They build mistrust, but don't seed trust. Uh, that's a real risk. I'm not as worried about fascism. I'm not as worried about um, authoritarianism in this world because anything that can be distributed will be distributed. Bob, uh, you know, I, I have so many notes here. I sent you my notes and, I, you know, we could do 10 shows on just this book alone, let alone your, your other ones. But I love the way you talked about digital natives and even the sense of what a digital native is. And you have a very specific definition for digital natives. You talk about a threshold shift rather than a cohort. You know, I should say I'm really optimistic about kids nowadays if they have hope if they have hope. And I'm, I'm really a voice of positive with around, around kids. And so many social scientists now are so down on kids, you know, saying, oh, they're depressed, oh, they're dangerous, oh, they're suicidal, and the internet is the problem. Um, I'm, I'm much more optimistic, again, if they have hope. But I do think digital is really important. So I, I think there's two thresholds, one in 2010, one in 2020. Um, in 2010, that's when the iPhone and the iPad were becoming practical. And this is from a chart from the I'm book, sorry. and it talks about the waves of innovation uh, since the internet started in 1968. It was publicly introduced in 72. And it shows those waves. Uh, and we're at 2010, if you were a young person starting to become an adult, so you were age 13 to 15, if you started to become an adult in 2010, you were able to experience the iPhone and the iPad in the first days of a media ecology. So the true digital natives are 24 or less in 2020, 24 or less, not the millennials. The millennials are too old. They're not digital natives, but they're also not a cohort. It's, a, it's too simplistic to think about these kids as a cohort. And I think there's going to be a second threshold now in 2020, uh, where because of new augmented virtual reality tools like the Oculus Quest and the Quest 2, and combine that with sheltering in place with homeschooling, uh, it's going to be a very disruptive year. So if you're a young person now, say 13 to 15 now in 2020, uh, that's what we're calling XR native, across reality native. Uh, and they're going to be really different and very disruptive. They are not a trend. They are a disruption. They are not a cohort. It's too simplistic. But there is a threshold. There is a threshold here. So again, I'm really optimistic about these kids if they have hope. So if they have hope, they're able to navigate the challenges. And what you find with the XR natives, the you know, 14 or less in 2020, the XR natives tend to be very concerned about climate. And many of them are growing up angry, the Greta Thunberg generation, uh, growing up angry because we've done such a bad job as adults of managing climate issues. Uh, they're also very concerned about rich-poor gap 
In America, at least, they're very concerned about guns. Um, so you find they're growing up with very intense concerns and they're very digitally connected and they're very sophisticated about changing, about sharing their own data. Uh, there are also many of them are gamers. You know, they're growing up with a gamer's mindset so they can learn in the VUCA world much better than, than the digital immigrants who are all of us who are 24 or older. <laughs> so I'm really optimistic about these kids if they have hope. Yeah, and, and you talk about that with the rich poor gap that they will still have access to digital tools, but it's the hope issue. If they have don't have hope, they can go the other way and then the the shape-shifting society. So if you don't have hope, you become a candidate for a terrorist organization because what they're they're recruiting kids without without hope. Um, and many of them are okay financially, but they don't have hope. I am very concerned about the rich poor gap, particularly after the COVID crisis. Um, the, the, this virus is so awful and so unfair. It's, it's affecting poor people and people of color much worse than it's affecting richer people and, and white people. Um, so it's really unfair. And it's hard to do a forecast, a 10-year forecast where the rich poor gap closes. It's easy to do a forecast where it gets worse. So uh, in the book, I mentioned three big looming issues. And the rich poor gap is one uh, global climate disruption, the climate crisis is my preferred term now, uh, is two. And cyber terrorism is three. Yeah, and we won't have time to cover those. But I wanted to mention so you, you're very positive about that if there's hope there. And you know, hope. If hope. Yeah. And it, you know, it's one of the drivers for me doing this show as well as to is to give new options for hope. Because if you look at things in a categorical world in the old mindset, you may not see much hope. But when you start to see a shape shifting society, you go actually, my diverse mindset is actually useful in this society and I can thrive if I have the right tools, the literacies. But but I wanted to one of the things you mentioned was the gaming there. And I thought about this because again, you have the old mindset making judgments on an emerging world or an emergent mindset. And when parents like myself talk to their children and go, I don't want so much screen time that's not so helpful. It's like, what is the screen time about? Because most parents are on screen time all day on the computer anyway, but but it's what they're doing. And I thought this was interesting. You talked about if you're gaming, and you're in a virtual gaming world, at least they're convening and they're socializing in a digital world, which is a useful skill for the future. Because they become literate, they become understanding, they can collaborate, you know, even if it's playing a game like Fortnite, whatever it might be. That's a useful skill if it's harnessed. I thought this was very useful to hear about. Yeah, so I think the way you have to think about video gaming is as a new medium. Um, and it's true that many of today's games are too sexual and too violent. So as parents, we're right to be concerned. Um, screen time is not a good measure because uh, 10 years from now, everything's going to be a screen. Uh, so the issue is not screen time. The issue is what are you doing through the screen? Um, and there's some basic neuroscience issues around screens. I'm not discounting that completely. I mean, you shouldn't look at a screen before you go to sleep, for example, and there's neuroscience reasons why not. But generally, it's what do you do with the screen time? What do you do through the screen? And if you think about video gaming today, if you think 10 years ahead, 
It'll be the most powerful learning medium in history, in history. And the kids are growing up with that gameful engagement skill. So gameful engagement is emotionally laden attention amplified by new digital interfaces. And the digital interfaces in video games are roughly 10 times better than anything we have in offices, including media like this. So much more vivid, much more vivid. And that's the expectation, very powerful learning medium. And the kids are gonna come into the workforce with a competitive advantage over those of us who did not grow up with gaming. So very powerful new medium that can have very positive effects. There are negatives, I'm not discounting those. I'm just saying the positive overrides the negative if you think 10 years out. And you mentioned, for example, EA, so Electronic Arts, and how they use gaming as a way to visualize data and data visualization being such an important skill. Yeah, it is interesting. So EA, one of the world's largest uh, video gaming companies, I teach at their university, they use my books, uh, and their big data analytics are amazing because you're able to actually go in the data distribution, not just look at statistics or normal curves. So it gives you a much better sense of of where things are going. I enjoyed your uh, analogy of 50 knot versus 500 knot brains and the fighter pilot versus yeah. the helicopter pilot versus the basketball player. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, you know, our brains are different. And and again, the military is ahead of us. Uh, a, a pilot friend is the one who shared that with me. And it, it makes a big difference if you're a fighter pilot and have to make very quick judgments or a helicopter pilot who have to make more nuanced judgments, but at a slow or speed and and both of those learn through gaming. I mean that's that's how you teach pilots is through gaming because you don't want to crash right away. You want to you want to do a flight simulator um, so you can crash without killing yourself and learn from the crash. I thought a really interesting thing. We've a lot of HR and CHRO people who listen to the show, people in human resources, learning and development, etc. And you talk about a shift from HR to HCR. I thought this was fascinating. And again, giving people who work in that field new skills to develop for the future so they become even more valuable in their roles. So I love the term human resources. And what I recommend for people who are in HR uh, is instead of calling it HR, which tends to be a term that's been devalued and outsourced, um, call yourself human resources with a pause to emphasize human resources. And human resources are so important in this world. But thinking 10 years ahead, thinking future back, the human 10 years from now is going to be part computer. <laughs> We're all going to be cyborgs. We're all going to be cyborgs. And the real issue is not so much artificial intelligence replacing humans with computers. The real issue is augmented intelligence. So in the book, I talk about human computer resources. And we're all gonna be blended. We're all gonna be augmented in some way that we choose. And the big question over the next decade is, what can humans do best? And what can computers do best? But human resources people 10 years from now are gonna to have to be deeply digital and deeply, deeply gamified because gaming will be the learning medium of the future and we'll all be cyborgs, we'll all be part computer. So the challenge is how do we get there? And the image I talk about in the book is 
adopted from Tom Malone's new book called Superminds. And what Tom talks about, and he's MIT professor, he talks about, he says, the big story is not computers replacing humans. The big story is humans and computers doing things that have never been done before. Never been done before. And that's the future of human resources. So we're going to see over the next decade a blending of the people function and the technology function into a human computing resources function. And we've got a chance to get ahead of that curve right now because that's playing out and it's being amplified by the COVID crisis and the shelter in place that's been occurring and still is occurring. I have a quote that I kind of just wanted to finish on. I tend to try and pull a quote to finish on it. And it's just actually how you conclude the book. But uh, while I'm reading it out, I'll give you a chance to kind of, if you had a chance to relay one message to our audience and to humanity, really, what would that be? But before I do, and before I ask you for that, where can people find out more about you, your books, and indeed the Institute for the Future? So we can put up the Institute's website. It's just www.iftf.org. We're an independent nonprofit. Um, and they list all my books there. All my books, the proceeds for all my books go to Institute for the Future's nonprofit leadership development programs. And uh, the book, Full Spectrum Thinking and, and the whole trilogy is available on all the usual sources. I recorded my own audiobook this time. So if you like listening to me, there's a whole audiobook out there. I I heard it by the way. I, I I do I tend to do both where I can. I listen and I read because you just end up getting it from every different sense. But I, I'm going to re read this quote that I loved from the end of the book, and uh, then I'll turn to you to kind of close today's show. You said this book is an optimistic forecast in a time when pessimism abounds. Full spectrum thinking will reveal how we are connected as well as how we are different. The challenge is for us, individuals, organizations, and society to find our common ground in the future and pursue that positive future with clarity. Many people have certainty, but few people have clarity. You can change that. And that is how I'm going to finish the show, Bob. What about you? What's your final message? Great. Well, as I've talked to people around the world about the book, the biggest need right now is for clarity. Uh, we each need to have our own clarity and we need a shared clarity, but the biggest risk is certainty. So avoid those with certainty, seek those with clarity. Author of Full Spectrum Thinking, How to Escape Boxes in a Post-Categorical Future, Bob Johansson. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aiden. Thank you for, for all you're doing.